1: Not only do you upgrade to FAIR, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who is jumping into the Democratic primary because apparently anyone can do it. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around the tech industry. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play a live interview I recently recorded with Susan Rice, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and national security advisor under President Obama. She's also the author of the book, Tough Love, My Story of Things Worth Fighting For. I spoke to Ambassador Rice at an event celebrating the 100th anniversary of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service, where I also went to school. So let's go to the campus of Georgetown University to hear my conversation with Susan Rice. Thank you. Yes. Oh, yes. So, mm. This is good. Okay, I usually interview uh, tech people, uh, but I've been interviewing a ton of political people uh, lately, including uh, Speaker Pelosi, a number of senators, um, on actually on both sides of the aisle. Um, and and many, many others talking about sort of global issues because I talk about tech and tech impacts everything. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your background so people can get a sense, because it was a really, the book, you sort of, I didn't know this about you. I had an idea that you were a super high achievement person, one of those people. Um, except I didn't go to Georgetown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that except, was well, my first mistake. What did you, wait, what was it, Harvard? What, Stanford. It, Stanford, right. Oh, yeah, which I couldn't get into. So uh, <laughs> neither Georgetown people couldn't get into Stanford. Anyway, um, so uh, it's fair. It's a fair assessment. So let's talk a little bit about your background, so people get a sense of how you came up to start uh, focusing in on foreign policy. And obviously, we really do have to get to the issues of just even yesterday and what's going on. There's so many issues. Even today. Oh God, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) I feel now like I can't take a shower because I can't. You You know, like I I go in the shower and then I'm like, what? We're at war with who? Like, huh? Who did? Who was arrested? Anyway. So let's start with your background, which is really interesting, your whole family's background, which is sort of the American story. Um, Talk a little bit about going back to your, I guess, great-grandparents. Okay.
3: Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for coming out, and Kara, thank you so much for having me on your podcast and doing this. Madam Speaker, it's an honor to be in your presence again. Um, My parents come from very different backgrounds, but um, each shared a deep commitment to education, Mm -hmm. to advancement, to excellence. On my father's side of the family, my dad was born in segregated South Carolina around 1920, and he was the grandson of a slave. Mm -hmm. My great-grandfather, Walter Rice, was uh, a soldier in the Union Army after emancipation, and he fought uh, in the Civil War in South Carolina. And a white officer took him to Massachusetts Mm -hmm. after the... End of the Civil War and gave him the opportunity to get a basic education. He translated that basic education into becoming a teacher, and then ultimately uh, he was driven out of South Carolina by the Klan and moved to New Jersey, where uh, he then went on to get his divinity degree at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. Back in those days, a slave getting a college education was quite an unusual thing. Right.
2: But he didn't just do that. He He went on to found a school.
3: He founded a school in New Jersey called the Bordentown School, which for 70 years educated generations of African Americans in vocational and technical skills, uh, and thus it was known as the Tuskegee of the North. But it also had a very robust college preparatory track. And so from the late 1880s until Brown versus the Board of Education made a state funded school that was. Uh, effectively segregated because it couldn't attract white students mm-hmm. illegal. Right. Uh, this uh, school had really an extraordinary record of, of achievement, and it brought to campus people like Albert Einstein, Eleanor Roosevelt, Mary McLeod Bethune. So that was my great-grandfather. Um, my grandfather also was a minister and uh, college-educated, and along came my father, Emmett Rice, who really was born in the heart of the harshest period of segregation in the Deep South. Jim Crow, lynchings, all these things, quite prolific. And he then went on to uh, get his college degree, his MBA, and then he was drafted into World War II. And he served uh, in the Air Force with the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm -hmm. And unlike a lot of uh, people, his view of the Tuskegee Airmen wasn't this you know, glorious history, although he was very proud to, to mm-hmm. be part of them, he was extremely resentful of the notion that African Americans had to prove to white people that they could fly and fight mm-hmm. as well as anybody else. Right. And he resented also the fact that, you know, he would go off the base and was refused service in restaurants and yet see German POWs being served. And so this was the environment in which he was raised, and yet he came from a tradition of, of education and he had ambition and talent After the war, he went out to Berkeley uh, and got his PhD in economics at Berkeley. And he went on to become a professor at Cornell, uh, serve in the Treasury Department at the World Bank, and ultimately as a governor of the Federal Reserve. Right. My mother's family completely different. So a
2: slacker, really. He was a slacker. okay.
3: So was my mom. Yeah. Uh, She was born in Portland, Maine in the early 30s. She was the daughter of immigrants from Jamaica that had come to Maine in 1912, whereas you can imagine there were not a lot of people who looked like me. Mm -hmm. And um, my grandparents had nothing. They were menial workers, a janitor and a maid, Um, and yet like so many immigrants, they came to this country in search of the American dream. And they scraped and saved and sent all five of their kids to college. Um, My four uncles, uh, two became doctors, one became An optometrist, one a university president. My grandfather was the first man to have four sons attend Bowdoin College in Maine. And then along came my mother, the youngest, who couldn't go to Bowdoin because she was a girl uh, when she graduated from college, or high school rather, in 1950, as valedictorian of her high school class in Portland, Maine. So she had to go to this other place nobody in her family had heard of called Radcliffe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so She, uh, she managed to go to Radcliffe despite the fact that she was denied a scholarship uh, by the main State Committee for Radcliffe because she was black. The rules were that the recipients of the scholarship were was supposed to be automatic if you were the valedictorian of your high school class. Mm-hmm. But in her case, because she couldn't move in the proper circles when she returned to raise money for Radcliffe because she was black, she was denied the scholarship. She almost didn't get to go, but her high school principal and debate coach lobbied Radcliffe directly and got her the money. So she went on to have a very successful career. She was Phi Beta Kappa and magna cum laude and the president of the student body Mm -hmm. in her senior year. But she really appreciated immeasurably the support she got to go to college. And she devoted the bulk of her career to making higher education accessible to low-income Americans. And she was eulogized when she passed as the mother of the Pell Grant program because she worked uh, for -hmm. years with Senator Pell and others to establish the program and sustain it.
2: Probably one of the most important programs. Yeah,
3: I I learned in the course of researching this book, Mm -hmm. Madam Speaker, you'd be interested to know this, that the Department of Education did not keep records on the number of individuals who had received Pell Grants. They knew how many grants they'd made, but not how many people had benefited. Mm-hmm. And so with Claiborne Pell's grandson, we pushed the Department of Education to actually figure this out. And it turns out 80 million Americans have benefited from the Pell Grant program. <laughs> so,
2: <yes. laughs> so the reason I wanted to talk about your background, because I think what's it, it's a unique combination, and now I kind of get it with you, Um, But uh, it's a unique combination of immigration issues, racism, uh, obstacles, and achievement, uh, overcoming achievement, and unnecessarily having to overcome obstacles that are there. You yourself excelled at school. Uh, Talk a little bit about that. Not how good you were at school, but uh, necessarily, because that's kind of braggy. Uh, But uh, you went through, how did you get into foreign service? Because your family was oriented towards education.
3: So my mom, you know, focused on higher education access and later went into the corporate world. My dad, obviously, more in public service. But I was born and raised here in Washington, D.C. This is my home. And my parents came here for the business of government. Mm -hmm. And I was born in 1964, and I was steeped in the issues of the day. When I was four years old, my parents took me and my baby brother, who was in a stroller, down to the 14th Street corridor, which was burnt up after the assassination of Dr. King. And they took me to the mall to, you know, to see the Poor People's Campaign. And they sat me in front of the television to see Robert Kennedy's coffin come down from New York. And so, you know, I write in the book that Walter Cronkite literally narrated my childhood. And I, you know, Vietnam and Watergate and all these were the issues in which I was raised and around a dinner table where we were expected to debate and hold strong views. And so I, I also was very fortunate because my parents at that point had uh, put away enough resources to enable me to go to the National Cathedral School here in Washington, D.C., which is a very elite private school for girls. And my classmates were substantially the sons and daughters of members of Congress and ambassadors. And so growing up, that was the environment in which I was raised. And I spent my first job in life, Madam Speaker, was as a page in the House of Representatives. (laughs) which I wrote about. It wasn't a pretty story back then, the, the lifestyle of the page. Mm-hmm. We got into a little bit of trouble. <laughs> yeah. What a shock. But in any case, and then I spent all four of my summers during high school, uh, after working as a page, then subsequently <laughs> as an intern on, uh, in the House, uh, for the House Education and Labor Committee, mm-hmm. under the patronage of Gus Hawkins. And... So this was my upbringing. I, I knew I cared about policy. I knew I cared about government. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that I was going to go into foreign policy. Foreign policy,
2: right. And so, what was the shift? I mean, I went to the Foreign Service School. I had wanted to be a CIA agent. See, I may be still, and it's the longest con in history. <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle of those that, internet That's That actually would be really
3: a good story. Maybe it is. Maybe, Maybe it's it not. is. <laughs> I not.
2: Mean, to There's say? A, Susan, a novel in Ambassador there. Ambassador Rice, who's to say? Um, But I wanted to do foreign service uh, for a long time, like the idea of it, and I couldn't because I was gay. There was a lot of issues about going into the military. I wanted to go in the military and stuff like that, but that's, I was always oriented towards it. What shifted you to the foreign service uh, idea of it? Well, it was
3: really ironic. I mean, I went to Stanford,
2: I did my history degree. I went to Oxford,
3: and when I went to Oxford, my expectation was that I would, then just do a master's degree for a couple of years and go on to law school. Mm-hmm. And my plan at you know age 21 or 22 was get a law degree, do public interest or public service law focused on domestic concerns, um, and perhaps one day run for Congress or mm-hmm. for the United States Senate. Of course, being from Washington D.C., yeah, that tough. was yeah, yeah. you know a particular challenge, but.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> While Plus you have hip-check Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is a mentor of yours. But she, right. Yeah,
3: but, you know, if I serve in Congress, she's been very effective, but she I'd has. like to have a vote. Yeah,
2: yeah. That would
3: be, you know, that would be kind of the minimum. Right, right. So you so you were... So, 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 what, what so you all right. Foreign so service anyway, I do two years in Oxford, and I study international relations. And I do it because I think, you know, if I'm going to go into, you know, public service and be an elected official, I should know something about the world. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is, I fell in love with it. And I decided to stay on and do my doctorate. I never went to law school. It was Eleanor Holmes Norton who advised me that since I loved what I was studying to stick with it, she actually said to me, how many many African-American PhDs in international relations do you know? And I said, none that I can think of. And she said, how many black lawyers do you know? I said, more than I can count. And she said, well, if you love it, do it, and you'll be 25 when you're done, and if you still want to get a law degree, it's not too late. So that set me on a course of being very interested in the substance of foreign policy and
2: international what relations. What particularly stuck with you? What was the area that you... Was there an incident or...? No, or? it wasn't an incident. It was just a... Because I remember uh, the Iran thing with Jimmy Carter being incredibly yep. formative for me yeah. watching well, that. Yeah,
3: that was formative for me as well. Mm-hmm. But that preceded my interest. I guess if anything, honestly... It was the anti-apartheid movement, mm-hmm. which was so uh, you know, hot when I was in college, and that got me interested in Africa. Uh, that got me interested in my dissertation topic, which was the transition of Rhodesia to Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. which I was trying to study for potential lessons as to how South Africa could affect a peaceful transition. And then one thing led to another. I took a, a bit of a diversion. I worked at McKinsey & Company for a couple of years. Well, everybody ab- has to, go ahead. <laughs> It was good training actually, it really was, Uh, after I got my PhD and then after McKinsey, I joined the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. At age 28, I was a junior staffer at the National Security Council and I worked on the UN portfolio and peacekeeping. Mm -hmm. And then one thing led to another, then I ran the Africa office at the NSC, then I went to the State Department in President Clinton's second term. Uh, and served as Assistant Secretary of State for African
2: Affairs. So talk about your interest in African affairs, because it's been an an area of focus for you.
3: Well, it goes back really to my parents, actually. I was (laughs) conceived in Nigeria, uh, and that was because my dad, early in his career, was uh, sent over to Nigeria by USAID to help establish the Central Bank of Nigeria in the early 1960s. And my mother worked for the Ford Foundation in West Africa. And they spent two years over there and came back just in time for me to be born on American soil. And I grew up with their fascination with West Africa, with all kinds of uh, really beautiful and valuable Yoruba art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, somehow that was early in my life infused in my system. And then, you know, the opportunity... To to study Africa from Oxford and to be able to travel there and do my dissertation research in a sustained way, so I I really early in my uh, in my career got one of the most vexing foreign
2: policy issues. One of the most vexing foreign policy issues.
3: Well, it's it's not an issue, right? It's a it's a whole it's 54 countries now with all kinds of issues and challenges, Um, but with extraordinary potential and Mm -hmm. promise too. And so I don't know. Almost anybody who spent any time in Africa, Madam Speaker, spent a lot of time there and not gotten a bit of that bug. It's Mm -hmm. just fascinating and stimulating and challenging and promising all at once. Mm -hmm. And so I spent six of my eight years in the Clinton administration focused primarily on Africa.
2: We're here with Susan Rice, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and national security advisor under President Obama. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this.
0: Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and JJ Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial.
1: If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: One of the things that I'll never forget was when Google first started, when I went to visit them, they had a display of where information was coming around the world. And they had a globe. They had a 3D globe. Have you seen this globe? No, it, but I can imagine Yeah, of course going. they do. Uh, it's next to the kombucha stand. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's a 3D globe that lights up where information is being asked, and the colors are the different languages being oh, asked. Oh, Interesting. Um, uh, and so you spin around to China, it's red, they think they're so funny, you know, And the, but there's tons of people asking questions. And so you can see when they're asking questions and the- Of the search engine. Of the search engine. And then what the amount of light coming off of things is the amount of questions and when they're being asked. And of course, there's when people are up and are not up, but most of the world was, Brit- uh, light, uh, Europe was full of colors, the United States, mostly the big cities, but still, you know, mm-hmm. there was color and light everywhere. And when it it, it it flipped around to Africa, it was, I, I hate to say this, but it was dark. There was not questions being asked. And so I remember saying to one of the founders, I can't ever keep them apart, um, saying, uh, why is that? And they said, well, they are at, they, they, of course, they have questions. This, like, everybody has a question. So I think questions are the foundation of knowledge. It's like, what is your question? And so asking questions means you're looking for answers. And it's a critical part of humanity is asking questions. And I said, they've got to be asking questions. And he said, there's a, there's a trunk line that doesn't reach, the internet doesn't reach there. And Google was trying to figure out a way to, to wire uh, Africa. But at the time when these trunk lines were created, they didn't get it. They didn't get one, just like everybody else did. And it was really fascinating me to think about the access to information and the lack of it, and the hope that it would jump, uh, that technology would jump over those problems of having phones and signals and things like that. But I remember being struck by the ideas. They had a lot of questions, but they couldn't get answers.
3: They don't have a lot of connectivity. Well, right, that's, exactly. In, that's changing. Yes, 100%. Slowly,
2: but it was uh, part of the heart of the problem. Is that if you don't get to ask questions, you have a harder time.
3: Yeah, if you don't have access to electricity, you also have a hard time. That's exactly, exactly,
2: the whole concept of it. But when you were were focused on that, what do you think your greatest achievements were?
3: Well, I think they were in various categories. With respect to the U.S. economic relationship to Africa, during the Clinton years, we transformed it uh, quite dramatically from one that was focused almost exclusively on providing development assistance in a one-way fashion, Um, which we substantially increased in that era, Um, but to a a more complex and and, uh, comprehensive economic engagement where we had real vehicles to promote trade and investment. And as a speaker will recall, um, that was the era in which uh, Congress passed the African Growth and Opportunity Act, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a big uh, initiative of the Clinton administration and uh, members of Congress. And it was designed to increase duty-free access for goods from Africa to the United States, mm-hmm. in, in effect uh, giving them uh, opportunities similar to the Caribbean Basin Initiative uh, mm-hmm. and elements of the GSP
2: system. And right, that's th- free trade. I've forgotten about that, but go ahead. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, I know That's that. a good thing. I'm aware. Some people get... Oh, I got about that part that. too. Okay. But go ahead.
3: But it, we also, through Exim Bank and OPEC yeah. and TDA and and you know the work of the Commerce Department under the late Secretary Ron Brown, really pushed uh, on the investment agenda as well. And so in that era, the economic relationship between the United States and Africa really went to a new level. And I think that's something to look back on with pride. And that trajectory and debt forgiveness, absolutely. Right. <laughs> That's exactly good, good, uh, good addendum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, debt forgiveness uh, under the HIPAA initiative was really controversial. In fact, I write in the book about a fight I got into with uh, Secretary of Treasury, Robert Rubin, Mm -hmm. and then another one with Larry Summers, who really didn't think at that time that it was wise to provide debt relief, particularly to countries like Nigeria, because of the moral hazard. And we were pushing for we, the policy people, were pushing for that because we felt that it was unsustainable otherwise. Right. So anyway, um, there's the economic agenda. Then there was also a security agenda because um, in the wake of the Rwandan genocide, which I write about as well, um, and I had sort of a, as I a junior get staffer, a front row seat on the decision-making or lack of decision-making on Rwanda, we recognized that you know, we were going to continue to be faced with these binary choices of does the United States intervene or does nobody intervene unless we help build African capacity right. to participate in peacekeeping and, and conflict resolution operations. And so we established something called the African Crisis Response Initiative, which substantially increased the U.S. investment in building peacekeeping capacity. Right. And so when war broke out, for the umpteenth time in Sierra Leone and the West African troops decided to intervene under Nigerian leadership, they had U.S. training and support right. and equipment to do it and actually accomplished it we're, much we're more effectively. We're
2: going to talk about multilateralism and all, all kinds of things, but I want to talk about the Rwandan crisis. Talk a little bit about that, because that's uh, probably one of the most devastating right. events. Right, well,
3: <laughs> I write about, this is now early in, in my career. This is when I'm at the NSC staff as a 28-year-old uh, staffer responsible for UN issues and peacekeeping. This was actually before I had the Africa portfolio. Um, remember 1993, October, which is when we had Black Hawk down in Somalia, mm-hmm. and we lost 18 American servicemen in a horrible uh, you know, atrocity as their bodies were dragged through the streets of Mogadishu. And that had been a US-initiated intervention, Uh, for humanitarian purposes, then handed off to the UN with U.S. forces there as backup. And the mission morphed in from a a simple humanitarian one into basically a combat mission. And when uh, we lost our 18 service members, President Clinton faced a real crisis with Congress who wanted to order the American forces out. And so, you know, to try to effect an orderly departure, President Clinton agreed that within six months of the downing of the helicopters, all U.S. forces would withdraw from Somalia. And that's what happened. It was a bit of a humiliating retreat nonetheless, um, and we left without the mission accomplished. But the last American forces withdrew from Somalia on March 31st of 1994. On April 7th, 1994, the plane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi were shot down, uh, which initiated the Rwandan genocide, which, as you'll recall, was about 90 days of extraordinarily intensive killing with machetes and um, leaving up to perhaps a million people dead. The United States, my big takeaway from watching how we made decisions on Rwanda was that we made you know a series of incremental decisions first thing to get american personnel out of harm's way which is always what we do in a crisis Mm -hmm. like that uh and then we confronted decisions about you know do we shut down hate radio uh etc but we never entertained the policy question of should the united states intervene intervene to try to um, halt uh, the, the killing. Because or politically we?
2: it was untenable.
3: No, it wasn't even that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was worse than that. Yes, it was, it, it was not untenable, it was unthinkable. Okay. So we actually never called the question at a deputies committee meeting or principals committee meeting. President Clinton didn't say, give me options. Um, and it wasn't just the United States. You know, we could have also mobilized others to intervene with us or you know with our support but because of Somalia in my judgment it really didn't actually occur to people to contemplate in that time redeploying us forces into an even more remote and unknown part of africa for a humanitarian mission well, and so we didn't we didn't have that discussion we didn't have that debate and you know later on as the scope of the 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 killing became clear and the consequences of collective global inaction, because it wasn't just the United States, it was the entirety of the international community. Um, We then intervened to provide assistance to refugees in the neighboring countries, in Zaire in particular, but that was, you know,
2: too Let's late. Talk about that idea of the push-pull, because that's a constant, the constant political push-pull here of whether we should intervene. And we're going to get to America first and what's happening now. But it's not something fresh and new from Donald Trump, this instinct. But that was that,
3: that wasn't, I think it was a different mindset at the time. We had done Somalia. George Bush mm-hmm. had
2: the first. A very international more, president. Had, inter,
3: had, in, had made the decision to intervene in but Somalia. But he was an
2: internationally focused president president. I I think Clinton was an international focused president.
3: And I think most of our presidents until recently were internationally focused, until very recently. Uh, But the, the Rwanda thing I think was unique. I mean, and Speaker will recall the same, like not only did the administration not actually call the question, n- nobody was standing up in the wells of the Congress saying, you know, we've got to intervene and nobody on the editorial boards of our major newspapers were recommending it. It just wasn't in that moment conceivable. And that was a, a, a very important lesson I took away. Which was? Which is, you've got to ask the question. You've got to confront it. The answer may be no. It may be yes. It may be do it a different way. But to not ask the question mm-hmm. is, you know, I think a, a real failure. Is that a failure.
2: fault of how we think about foreign policy or used to? I'm gonna, we're going to get to the current administration, but, but the, the way American foreign policy has been done, has that been the fault of?
3: No, I, th- I, I think that was just a, a particularly unique moment. And you know, later on, you know, the Clinton administration got very much involved in Kosovo, mm-hmm. and was very activist. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think, and perhaps in reaction right. to that failure in Rwanda, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, you, you can't accuse President George Bush '43 of not being activist. No, <laughs> uh, and you know, and President Obama confronted these dilemmas repeatedly. Um, you know, we we decided to intervene in Libya. We decided not to intervene, you know, in the civil conflict in Syria. Obviously, we went in to fight ISIS, but that was a different uh, question. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as national security advisor, fast-forwarding yeah. uh, many years, you know, my responsibility, I felt, was in these very complex questions of humanitarian intervention, to insist that we confront it on a regular basis. And in in the case of Libya and Syria, obviously that was also President Obama's instinct. And we met repeatedly on all these topics and revisited the questions at different stages. And again, as I said, came to different answers. Um, And so my fundamental long-term takeaway about how we approach the question and the challenge of humanitarian intervention is that there is really no one-size-fits-all. You know, we've got to look at each uh, case in the its in your context case, they, on Well, you talked the about how they're
2: affecting each other. How they, they like do one, affect each other, and right. you know,
3: hopefully, we're learning human beings as policymakers. Uh, but the my fundamental conclusion is, just because we can't intervene everywhere, mm-hmm. doesn't mean we shouldn't intervene anywhere. But we have to look at the risks and the benefits. In each case, and
2: make so. Let's fast forward to your to our time our on ability. the Obama administration, because after the Clinton administration, you went to do other things. Uh, talk During about com- the Bush administration, yeah, you yes. weren't hired. Um, I wasn't looking to be hired. I know, got that. Okay, got, all right. Um, <laughs> so you, so what was your thinking when you were coming back into policy, the hopes that you had to change what had happened in the interim period between Clinton and President Obama?
3: Well, I. First of all, I was a, a, a very early supporter of President Obama mm-hmm. and worked on the campaign and worked on the transition. And when I came in, I came back as national, as uh, excuse me, as UN ambassador, right. which obviously was at a, a different level with more of a global perspective and, and span of responsibility. And I sat at the National Security Council Principles Committee decision table and in the cabinet. And, you know, we had so many uh, objectives coming in. We had the global financial crisis that we had sure. to recover from. Uh, we had the challenge of the, the hangover from the Iraq war and the damage done to our alliances and partnerships as a result and the need still to manage and calibrate the extent of our involvement in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so we had a number of carryover uh, challenges to confront. But President Obama also had... You know what we called inside the an affirmative agenda, things that he wanted to get done over the course of his tenure, uh, that would leave the world in our view better than we found it. Not just manage the inbox sure. or the inheritance, and that's you know that's how come the president you know in his first year pulled out his laptop and you know walked into a meeting with Xi Jinping in Copenhagen to try to you know save the climate talks, and that. Later evolved into the U.S.-China agreement on climate. Mm-hmm. And sorry, it wasn't Xi Jinping; it was Hu Jintao at the time. And then uh, it led to the Paris Climate Agreement. Mm-hmm. And you know, he decided that we wanted to try to reduce the threat of nuclear weapons, and that led to the Nuclear Security Summit agenda, and it led to ultimately the Iran Nuclear Deal. Um, he was interested in, you know, enhancing and promoting our trading relationships. And so we had a number of bilateral agreements and ultimately tried to negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which we did negotiate, but then right. didn't join. And so on a whole range, the opening to Cuba, you name it, these were among the the affirmative choices that we made, even as we were wrestling with the things that we couldn't have predicted, like the Ebola epidemic mm-hmm. or, you know, the, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine or Russian interference in the election.
2: Which we'll get to. Um, but but in terms of what you were mostly focused on, what you thought was the most important achievement during that time, and I do wanna talk about the mistakes that you feel, upon reflection, happened during this period. What do you think the most important achievements were? Because- I so just many, listed a number yeah, of Yeah, I know them. that, <laughs> of, the, of those, because many of them have been rolled back and we'll get to that, um, but when you were thinking about it in a larger sense, What was the key attribute of what you were trying to do as a theory? I guess your theory.
3: The theory of the Obama administration on national security and foreign policy is that the nature of the challenges we face are such that they can best be addressed in conjunction with allies and partners. Right. Very hard to think of a challenge, whether it's a rising China or an aggressive Russia or a pandemic disease or climate change or proliferation or counterterrorism mm-hmm. that we can address in isolation more effectively than we can with allies and partners. And so the hallmark in in my estimation of the Obama administration's foreign policy was to nurture and bolster those alliances and partnerships such that you know when we needed them they were there. Um, and that's how we accomplished the Paris Agreement. That's how we snuffed out the Ebola epidemic. That's how we rallied pressure on Russia following the invasion of Ukraine. It's how we got 65 plus countries uh, to join with us in the fight against ISIS. It's how we maintained the coalition in
2: Afghanistan. I want to talk specifically at Ebola because I think that's an excellent example of, of that. But this has been a, a sort of a concept for a long time. Um, you know, this is all leading into now, it's not that. But do it, 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 you feel like that this idea of multilateralism, of, of cooperation, of, of allies has been an important part of one, keeping the peace, two, protecting national security, and three, keeping a safe world to respond to whatever happens to come up. I want you to talk about the importance of that, of multilateralism, the ability to do that, because I think it's something that gets lost in what's happening now. Well,
3: I think that one of the differences between the Obama administration and say the immediately prior administration, was not that you know, we didn't all agree on the importance of our alliances, but it, it was often a question of how we utilize those alliances and how deferential we were to those alliances and how much we cared about international law and multilateralism. So as UN ambassador, I was in the thick of our multilateral diplomacy. And uh, you know, as challenging and frustrating as the UN can sometimes be, our strong preference was to bring other countries along with us right. and to try to legitimize and, and strengthen the, the effectiveness of our actions by having that backing. So for Libya, for example, you know, I was tasked to go get a Security Council resolution that authorized our, our NATO's, the Arab League's intervention in Libya. And it was a heavy lift, but we got it. Um, Whereas if you contrast it with Iraq, 2003, you know, the Bush administration decided, you know, forget the UN, we don't have the time or the patience for it, and Mm -hmm. went on. And that broke a lot of crockery, including with our traditional allies in Europe that felt that, you know, that was not only a mistake, but an unnecessary mistake. So that's just in a compare and contrast to give you a sense of the difference. You know, we worked hard to bolster these international institutions and their legitimacy rather than tear them down. And we were fortunate to have from Congress, um, in contrast to the Clinton years, the the support to pay our dues and and debts to the U.N. and to stay current and to
2: remain an effective player. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Susan Rice.
1: Here's today's STEM tip. Don't throw out that old plastic bottle. Repurpose it by turning it into an awesome terrarium. Just fill it with sand, pebbles, soil, and your favorite plant. It'll grow sealed right in its own ecosystem. Learn more at SheCanSTEM. A message from the Ad Council.
2: I do want to move into current events right now because it's really important. We have a short time of questions from people here. But in terms of what you felt was your... Most difficult period, or the things that you you yourself did wrong. I, this book has one page on Benghazi, which I think was, or a couple pages on Benghazi. It's but, got a whole chapter. Uh, <laughs> you think it was, yeah. Okay. All right. I sorry. I, <laughs> good. I, I t- point take it. Talk a little bit about that, and okay. All right. I got you it. Got it. Okay. I Promise um, you. So hold. Okay. It might even be the longest chapter. Okay, so talk about that, about what happened there for, from your perspective, because I think it was probably the most difficult period and the things that then moved into the right wing attacking you so heavily and everything else. Talk a little bit about that.
3: Well, uh, most of you will recall, but I was at an event the other night where, with Richard Haas at the Council on on, Foreign Relations, and he said, how many people understand what happened in Benghazi? And a lot of hands didn't go up. Right. So uh, quickly. It's September 2012. We're in the middle of uh, the president's reelection campaign, and we tragically, on September 11th, had an attack, a uh, terrorist attack on our diplomatic compound in Benghazi, Libya. We lost four Americans, uh, including our ambassador, and it was, you know, it was a horrific loss. The administration. Uh, Immediately, the president the next day condemned the act of terror, uh, and uh, yet the Republicans pounced um, and suggested that, that he, he and the administration were downplaying the nature of the attack. Mm-hmm. On that Sunday following the Tuesday of the attack, I was asked to go out on the all five of the Sunday shows and represent the administration to talk about not only what had happened in Benghazi, but uh, what had happened around the world, as many of our facilities in the Arab and Muslim world had faced demonstrations, many of them mm-hmm. that had turned violent, and also to preview the upcoming United Nations General Assembly. That Friday night, just as an aside, uh, well, it's not really an aside, it's kind of central, mm-hmm. I went to stop by my mother's house. Uh, my mom, uh, who I've described to you at this age, is uh, she's at probably about, just about 80, she'd had just recovered from her fourth or fifth cancer surgery and had a post-operative stroke. And I was living in New York and coming home on the weekends, and so I really wanted to Mm -hmm. check in on her and spend some time. So I go by her house on my way home, and she says to me, so what are your plans for the weekend? And I said, well, I'm taking the kids tomorrow to Ohio State for Mm -hmm. their first Big Ten football game. And then the White House has asked me to go on the Sunday shows. And she said, what? Why? And I said, because, you know, they need somebody to go out. She said, where's Hillary? And I said, Mom, you know, she's had a week from hell. Uh, They asked her, and and she said, no. And she said, my mom said, I smell a rat. (laughs) You should not do this. And I said, Mom, don't be ridiculous. I've done this plenty of times, it'll be fine. Mm. And of course it wasn't.
2: Yeah. Listen to
3: your mother. Yeah, so that's the biggest lesson of my book is listen to your mother. Right. That's number one. Uh, And it applies not just in the case of Benghazi, by the way, but it's useful to Mm -hmm. remind my kids as well. Um, Yeah. uh, So what she perceived Mm -hmm. was that in the hothouse of a political... Campaign. Campaign with, you know, partisan spears flying. Right. That whoever went out and delivered this message was going to be attacked as much or more Mm -hmm. as the message itself. And I wasn't thinking about myself. She was being my mom and looking out for my best interests. I was thinking about, you know, being part of a team that had just suffered an extraordinary loss. I'd been asked to do something. It wasn't what I planned to, how I planned to spend my weekend, but as a team player, I said yes. Oh, by the way, and then I went on the shows, and what I shared as our best current assessment of right. what had happened were based on talking points that had been drafted and approved by the intelligence community. And I knew them to be accurate because I was a recipient every day of the President's Daily Briefing and all of our intelligence, and I knew that the, the talking points reflected what we had in classified sources as well. But it turned out some days after I went on the shows, um, about seven to 10 days later, the intelligence community got additional information as we expected it would through the investigations and updated their assessment of what had happened and acknowledged that what they had shared with uh, me and members of Congress on that weekend was actually inaccurate in some respects, but here's the latest current assessment. But by that point, I'd become Roundly branded a liar, mm-hmm. incompetent, untrustworthy. Um, Republican members of Congress were all over the television set. Peter King called for my resignation, and you know, Lindsey Graham and um, uh, John McCain were particularly virulent. Mm-hmm. And you know, thus began months and months of. Uh, denigrating my integrity and intelligence. reason I wanted to
2: about it was largely because what you also got caught in is the first instance of internet attacks and right-wing... I don't know if it was the first, well, but it well, was... Well, it was one of the first times that I, th- I thought it was... I, I paid attention to it. It okay. was really interesting to me. It's not the first, but it was the beginning of that idea of how ideas are pushed down and uh, spread, especially like yesterday... Um, there was one there, they showed uh, we didn't we hired Donald Trump to do to fire. Uh, that was Donald Trump Jr. R- yeah, that's true, that's true. but they also there was also bots that went mm-hmm. crazy and stuff like that. So it was the first beginning of what I think is Russian intervention using social means, but it was whether you made a mistake or not, or we were using inaccurate assessments, it, was, it took it to a new level that yeah. I thought was w- yes. riveting and also horrifying at the same time.
3: So, I'm, yes, is the short answer. I, but, I, you know, I had the attacks with named from faces real people, from real right. people, right. from real members of Congress and real right-wing commentators. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I had an extraordinarily generous and robust defense from members of Congress on the other side, who right. led by Speaker Pelosi and... Mm-hmm. Harry Reid and others who came to my early and and sustained defense. But, you know, it was a thing, and it was amplified by, you know, the dispersion of, you know, political television, but also, I think, by social media. I don't have a a clear, concrete understanding of quite how involved the bots were in that case, but I think Mm -hmm. they were. Mm -hmm. In retrospect, I didn't realize it at the time. But in any event... uh, you know, I talk about the effects that it had on my daughter uh, who was nine years old, who really suffered for a period of time. I talk about how it affected my mother. And I do that with, in, with pretty raw frankness because I want people to understand that, you know, the politics of personal destruction in this town don't come for free, that they impact the lives of people who didn't sign up for this.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And now what we're seeing with the attacks on civil servants, Mm-hmm. is just unbelievably I want to offensive. T-
2: let's, let's switch to the Trump administration, and we'll get to questions from the end. But the, the, right now, how do you perceive it? You are watching this from the sidelines. A lot of these achievements that you talked about have been rolled back, uh, whether it's the Paris Accords, uh, trade agreements, um, an attitude about multilateralism. It's all swept away. Talk how you feel, what, that, what is that like as, a, as some, I mean, it, it sucks, I'm guessing, is yes, your answer. Yes, it sucks. Um, <laughs> That's but the short talk answer. about what, what, where we are then, this America first well, idea, We the shithole countries, the whole. I mean, I really don't, uh, it sucks personally, but I don't
3: really care. What I care about is that all of these undoings, mm-hmm. reversals, are being done out of spite without an alternative strategy to achieve a better outcome. Mm-hmm. And what are we doing to deal with climate? What are we doing to enhance our, you know, our trade relationships in the Pacific? What are we doing to uh, improve the, or reduce the threat from Iran? We've lost the, the threat on the nuclear challenge now. They're, that's had been under control. It's now out of the box and all of their other malign behavior in the region is exacerbated. Mm-hmm. So we've just undone without replace. It's, it's like repeal and replace. There's no replace, mm-hmm. right? They just want to repeal.
2: And so that's what we well, are there is seeing. An, there is an underlying mentality behind repeal. Well, the, the mentality
3: repeal. is, it, actually, I'm, I'm going to be blunt here. I have come to the conclusion that we don't have an America first foreign policy. Mm-hmm. As misguided as that is, And it's misguided because, as I said earlier, so many of the challenges we face require the support and the collective action of allies and partners. So, you know, if you want to put America first, which I think every president has always done, the way to do it is to bring others to join with us in our objectives. So Trump has the rhetoric of America first, Mm -hmm. but his actions belie that. And what it actually is, I think we've come to see, is it's a me first. Mm what can I get personally for my political benefit or my financial benefit uh, at the expense of U.S. interests? And that's what we've seen in Ukraine. That's what we've seen in Syria. And we still need to figure out, you know, what the quid pro quo was in that case. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's underlying everything.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, it's an interesting thing. You're right. that There's the politics of personal interest, I think, here, which is very clear from these phone, these perfect phone calls. Um, and and such, but th- there is something behind it, this concept, which I think has been around in this country for a, v- a much longer time, and I think that's... Which is the retrenchment and isolation. It, it's the idea that, what have they done for us? Why do we need to, like, there, there is a, Actually, well, the, it's not even a theory, it's a mentality. Well, of like, what do we need to pay taxes for? What do we need... It goes back to the Whiskey Rebellion. Like, what do we need a joint Continental Congress? What do we need this? What A Continental Army, excuse me. Um, this there, When you hear the rhetoric, it has that same string is... Uh, they're not paying their fair share. We're paying for everything. We're like, what are we getting at? What are we getting out of it? And I think it's not just him. I think there is a larger- there
3: is, but it's being stoked by so much
2: misinformation and (laughs)
3: non-history. I mean, what do we get from Afghanistan to Vietnam to every major conflict we have had to be in? We have had the support of allies and partners. You know, would we want to have done any take, just take go back to 9 /11, mm-hmm. since that's the most proximate. That was the only time that NATO has invoked Article Five, the self-defense provision. The allies came to our defense and joined with us to fight Al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan. Would we have wanted to do that alone? That's what we get. We get, you know, when ISIS reemerges or emerges in Iraq and Syria. We get allies and partners to join with us in that effort. And the notion that we entered into NATO or any other alliance relationship on the basis of a dollar transaction right. is just antithetical to who we are as a nation. And you know, now we're extorting the Japanese and the South Koreans to pay outrageous sums for our bases there which serve our interests. We're not doing the, uh, the South Koreans and the Japanese a favor by being there. It has mutual benefit, but we want that forward presence. Mm-hmm. That's part of how we project influence and power. So the, the whole notion that we are somehow doing these poor mooching countries a favor is asked backwards. Mm-hmm.
2: That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> so I'm going to the it. Up. <laughs> When to get the Q&A inside. a couple more questions about the impact, because this is a tech, I'm a tech-oriented person. How do you look at when you see everywhere in each of these stories, there's an element of the damage that tech has done, whether it's tweeting, whether it's like yesterday you saw it with the ambassador. Uh, she was testifying even as he was using Twitter as a medium to threaten her. When you think about policy, the policy, foreign leaders are tweeting at each other, there's all kinds of things going on. When you look at a world like that, that it's opened up, and then there of course is the Russian interference in elections and the use of social media platforms. Whatever happens in the next election, there's a lot we have to figure out of how to deal with this new information environment with foreign policy and domestic policy, but especially around foreign policy.
3: Well, I think there are different things going right. on here. I mean, obviously, the use of social media as a vehicle to exacerbate our domestic political divisions by our adversaries, principally Russia, um, as they you know, play on both sides of every divisive issue, race, <laughs> immigration, yes. guns, gay rights, and they are working to weaken us as a rival power yeah. by causing us to basically eat ourselves up from within, pit ourselves against one another. Mm-hmm. And if they can continue to succeed in that, they can supersede us, defeat us,
2: without ever firing a bullet. It's sort of like thinking they lost the Cold War, but they're winning this one, the digital war.
3: So far. Yeah. But we've given them the opening with which to do it, which are our domestic political divisions. And we also the, gave them the tools, the technical well, tools. Well, that's true too, Yeah. I write in the book, uh, in the last chapter, called Bridging the Divide, my strong conviction that our domestic political divisions are in fact our greatest national security vulnerability, mm-hmm. and talk about a number of the, the steps that I hope we can consider to, uh, to address it. But, you know, th- but then you, you get into how foreign policy is conducted, and you know, foreign policy by tweet is not a, an appropriate approach. Right. And, But it is happening. It's happening. I hope, I really do hope that when we have a new president with hopefully some experienced and sober advisors around him or her, that we will go back to the era where you actually issue proper statements and you actually have considered rollout strategies when you make hopefully well-conceived decisions through an actual national security decision making process because you, you you know you don't just wake up and tweet out whatever thing floats through your brain well yes you do but go but ahead no 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 that's
2: <laughs> he does we don't and that's a really important distinction sure? yes. i mean do you think it, go when you say go back i'm always i, I don't damn think damn it they, no <laughs> look this is really important
3: the no I, the notion that this can become the new normal mhm is something we absolutely have to reject. We need to make considered thoughtful decisions through a rational process. Absolutely. We need to consult Congress and our allies before we announce these crazy ass decisions. And when they do come out, they need to come with a thoughtful statement, not a tweet.
2: So last question, what is is the one thing you would say to the tech companies, for example, to do then? well, well turn the tech, I it's
3: like, you know, doesn't matter. I don't blame Twitter for the fact that we've got a president who doesn't know how to use
2: it. Right. Well, actually he's quite good at it, but
3: No, I mean, what I mean is use it in a responsible right. fashion that's befitting right. a president of the United States. I mean, Twitter existed in the last administration. You didn't see, you know, the withdrawal of our forces from Syria announced by President Obama on Twitter. Right. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So, I mean, what do the tech companies need to do? First of all, I think the tech companies need to really embrace their role and responsibility. And it goes back to the prior thing. It's not about who tweets on what. It's about how and whether they're allowed to be used by adversaries, foreign and domestic, to play the adversary's game, which is uh, to exacerbate these divisions and to, you know, propagate false information. Um, And this whole question of, you know, whether, you know, Facebook needs to police political advertising, I mean, is a huge question. And I think, frankly, I don't know what you think, but my view is, why should Facebook abide by different standards than any other traditional form of media? Because that's, in fact, what they, I know they like to say they're not a media company.
2: Or just turn it off like Twitter did. We'll turn it off, but, it off. you know, yes. So what, would you like to be Secretary of State in another uh, administration? <sighs>
3: that depends on a lot of things. Like, where am I in my life? Where are my kids? Who's the president?
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you backing who's the anyone? team? Are you no, backing? I
3: haven't endorsed anybody yet. Uh, I, you know, I, I think we have a strong field, and I'm very much looking forward to fully supporting our nominee. But I, I haven't uh, done that, and I, um, I realized in the last three years, there's a whole world out there. Yeah. You know that you, you don't have to be in government. What? To have fun and to. You can't serve. say it to these people. No, I'm serious. You, I strongly encourage people to serve. It, the best you know, the best professional experiences of my life have been to have the privilege to serve. And for all the knives in my back and my front, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
2: All right, well on that note, let's get some questions from the audience. We have a few minutes, questions. Go ahead, come down to the thing.
3: Thank you so much, my name's Elijah. I'm a uh, first year master's of science in foreign service. uh, And I'm also from San Francisco and was actually honored to be Uh, a page in one of the last classes in 2011 with Speaker Pelosi, so it's great to have uh, another page over here. (laughs) Um, And uh, I also was one of the students in Ambassador Yovanovitch's uh, classes uh, earlier this semester that she referenced um, and was inspired, like so many people here, by her words yesterday. So kind of with that context, I'm wondering if you could talk about how you see the role of Congress um, in kind of upholding our alliance structures, uh, traditional commitments to human rights, uh, and kind of uh, continuing um, the, the role the U.S. should be playing uh, in foreign policy. Uh, there's a
2: number of deals on the table right now that they're working Well, on. I think Congress is a very important player.
3: And, you know, it's difficult when we have a, a divided Congress and one party who seems to care only to, to rubber stamp and protect the actions of a president that's acting outside of the boundaries of, arguably, the law, at least the norm. Um, But, you know, in in normal times, Congress, you know, would be advocating for and standing up for critical principles. So, you know, the House has led on, you know, issues like Yemen, where, as I have acknowledged, I think, you know, we made a mistake in the Obama administration in backing the Saudi-led uh, intervention uh, to the, you know, that has gone way off the rails. Mm-hmm. And we tried to roll it back towards the end of the administration. The Trump administration doubled down. And, you know, we've... Well, the Saudis have gone way off the rails on a lot of things. On a lot of things. What, well, i about gone, but they are off. Mm-hmm. They may have gone off earlier. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I, I do think that Congress has a, a really important role. You know, I don't know if you all... Noticed, but in that off the record speech that John Bolton recently gave that got reported by NBC News. Yeah, off the record. The most frightening thing I heard him say is that he thought if President Trump got reelected, that he would pull out of NATO. Think about that. And that's from his national security advisor until two months ago. So what can Congress do if the president were to try to pull out a NATO? I mean, that may be the last break. And I know Congress is sort of, you know. Could that be accomplished? Well, I, you had Macron talking about the hollowing out. It, it, it can only be accomplished if we withdraw. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a likely outcome. But that's a place where Congress can, you know, it can put on some real meaningful breaks. Um, so anyway, that's a long way of saying that I think there are many important ways that, that Congress plays a, a critical role. And, you know, sometimes it's positive. And in the case I described with respect to Somalia, for example, I think it was actually negative. They, can, they tied the hands of a president to an extent that I think was unwise. Okay.
2: Two more questions.
0: Michael Ortiz uh, asked me to ask a question. He told me I had.
3: Uh, thank you for your career of service, Ambassador, and for your candor. And thank you,
1: Kara, uh, for holding tech to account. Do you lament, uh, it seemed to me that there was uh, sort of reduced policy options because of congressional con- Republican control in the run up to the 2016 election, the la- lack of consensus, if you will. Uh, is there more that could be done
0: prophylactically in the run-up to the 2020, thanks to Democratic control of the House?
3: Yes, and it's been done, and it's sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, right? There's a whole election security agenda. Yeah, there's a whole lot sitting Sitting on on that desk. desk. But there's additional funding, there's you know, legislation that would require paper ballots, there's legislation that would automatically penalize foreign actors that are found to have interfered. I mean, this is all wrapped up in a bill that Mitch McConnell won't move. What about in terms of oversight of tech? Uh, that, you know, that hasn't happened yet, to my knowledge. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of hearings, there's been a lot of consideration of it. Um, I, I think it's: There's yeah, investigations. And they're an I think that's complicated, but I think that you know I think the tech companies need to understand that they're about five minutes from midnight on this, that they're either going to uh, assume their responsibilities without a lot of throwing sand in the gears, or they're going to get legislated into some a different kind of uh regulatory environment, which I, well, I think is probably not optimal. are going to
2: take seven years, and by then we will have the Terminator has arrived. Uh, so I think the issue is legislative. It has to be a legislative solution, and quick, because the, the Justice Department actually is doing some really important investigations, so is the FTC, but they're underfunded, both of them, both of those and they are, are over-committed to a lot of other things. And so a legislative solution, whether it's the state's attorney generals or the Congress, is really the only place this is going to get. I'd like to see more self-policing. Yeah. I'd rather not sure. have to rely sure. on Sure, No. I not. know, yeah. <laughs> no. They're not the most self-regulating people. I got you. I Martin. with uh, from
1: 2017. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Ambassador Rice. Um, In your view, how can we leverage technology as a force for good in foreign policy and foreign service moving forward?
2: Better cell phones for uh, Mr. Sondland, but go ahead. (laughs) What an an oaf. My teenager could hack his phone doing that, but anyway, nonetheless.
3: I mean, I think in, in many of the ways that technology has the potential to... Benefit society more broadly. It has the potential to to augment our execution of foreign policy, but it also has a downside to it that I think we we haven't fully, um, and I'm talking about technology broadly, artificial intelligence, biotech. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all things that can make us better and, 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 uh, and more effective, but they also can be used as weapons of war, completely unregulated. And, uh, I'm
2: leaking. We didn't even talk about Edward Snowden. We didn't talk about Snowden. I do in the book. Yeah. I just I, chatted with him. He's good. <laughs> tell, tell him I said. Drone strike? Yeah. Okay. I got that. <laughs> no, were you drone strike? That was Hillary. I, yeah. Let's not okay. talk about Snowden. <laughs> okay.
3: Um, the, <laughs> um, so I do worry about the various ways in which we're not sufficiently focused on how the downsides of technology can affect the conduct of of not just diplomacy, but of of war fighting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think there, there are pluses and minuses, but I worry quite honestly that as we compete more and more intensively with China, that we've lost the very useful triumvirate that we had, frankly, during the Cold War Mm -hmm. between government, the private sector, and academia uh, to coordinate and concert our capacities, you know, towards a a common aim right now. You know, in in Silicon Valley, the U.S. government, and this is frankly well before the current administration, is viewed as the enemy, or at least with great suspicion. Um, And that's not healthy, and now it's become a two-way street. Hmm? I don't think by the CEO. Right, exactly, workers, exactly. Yeah. And it's constraining the ability of the CEOs to, to do what they may be inclined. I mean, Pro- Project Maven is... From Google. The, the, the classic example, and that was, a, Though office, that was an immodest, I mean, a modest effort. Right, a modest although,
2: effort. although uh, on the other side, there's a lot of feeling among peop- uh, the tech companies, CEOs will say, we have to be this big in order to fight China. It's the she or me argument that Mark Zuckerberg tends to make. We have a choice a, a, between the two of them. And I think the question is, is our innovation is what keeps us fresh or is it bigness? And so I think that's a real problem. But China's our absolute dangerous uh, And meanwhile, some of these, some of these it's not companies just TikTok, are making
3: accommodations with China right. that you know, they would never think to make with the United States. Right.
2: But militarily, technologically, te- in technology, militarily, China is really quite impressive in what they've been doing. And that's frightening. A Chinese internet. Controlled internet would be dangerous for everybody. Last question.
0: Not a question. Uh, I've been asked to. Uh, first of all, thank you both for your participation. It's been wonderful. I've been asked to announce that for those of you who are looking for a lunch, there are box lunches in the ICC Galleria oh. <laughs> and at <laughs> okay. the Healy Family Student Center. So.
2: Okay, great. All right. All right. Lunch. I'm going to wrap up. My very last question. One. What do you think the most dangerous foreign policy? I mean, a very short answer of the Trump administration is, and is there one you agree with them on? Well, Edwards, (laughs) you can end on that. What's the most dangerous pressing foreign policy issue right now?
3: Well, that's not a short answer, but my answer to that, we, we have a number of constants, right? You know, we've got a rising China, we've got an aggressive Russia, we've got North Korea that still has nuclear weapons and missile capacity that's actually perfecting as we send love letters back and forth. Mm-hmm. We have the risk of conflict, I think, in the Persian Gulf. But I say this with no satisfaction and a lot of sadness. I think, frankly, the biggest threat we face right now is on, in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, I'm not being facetious. It, the unpredictability, the lack of actions commensurate with our interests and values, the denigration of our allies, the elevation of our adversaries, Um, foreign policy being conducted for personal, political, and financial gain. The United States, under every prior president in my lifetime, has tried to do whatever that administration thought was the right thing for the United States of America. You can argue about whether it was or whether you agree or disagree. I don't think you can say that any prior president in our lifetime set out to conduct foreign policy for something other than what he understood to be the national interest. And the United States tried very hard to be a a stabilizing influence in the world, or at least of what we perceived to be a force for good, even if others would argue that we were not. Now we are a net exporter of instability and unpredictability. And that's when it's the United States of America with all of our weight and all of our influence and all of our power being the greatest source of unpredictability, that's a dangerous thing. And it makes it really hard to deal with all these other constant challenges um, effectively.
2: Well, on that note, Happy note, exporter (laughs) of instability, thank you so much. Thank you again to Susan Rice for coming on the show, and thank you to Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. You can follow me on Twitter, at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at hey hey ESJ. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend, and make sure to check out our newest podcast, Reset. Just search for it in your podcasting app of choice, or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rowley. Special thanks to Andrew Logan for recording this interview. And thanks again to Georgetown University for hosting us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rico Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.
1: HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots. So you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com.